Good morning, church. My name is David Erickson. I'm a member here, and it's my privilege to bring the Word of God to you this Mission Sunday. So our passage, as Hunter just read, is Psalm 67. It's a beautiful statement of God's intention to someday be praised by every nation. It's just like John's vision in Revelation that we studied last year. It ends with all peoples, all, all, people from all languages and tribes gathered around the throne, praising God into all eternity. We get a taste of it this morning as we sing praises to the Lord, but it, it's meant to extend to all nations. So this psalm teaches us that this, this is God's intention. But there's something curious about this psalm as well. It makes a connection between God's desires, what God wants, and our desires, our personal desires, what we inherently want. So last week, Rick took us through Romans 1, where we saw that sinful humanity is driven by the lusts of our heart. And so God gives us over to unnatural desires to worship the creation instead of the creator. But not all desire is unnatural. Our God is generous and kind, and he loves to work his grand purposes through us and for our benefit and never at our expense. And Psalm 67 helps see how, uh, it shows us how this works. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the text. Uh, if you're not already there, it's on page 450 of your pew Bible. You can follow along. I want to start by making just a few observations about the structure of the psalm. You'll notice that Hunter, when he read it, he, read, he started with the header. It's the words before verse 1, which is actually, they're part of the inspired Hebrew text. It tells us this is a song. It's meant to be sung by a choir. It's meant to have instruments accompanying it. And you also heard Hunter read two untranslated words. Uh, there's one word, selah, that's repeated twice. And scholars aren't sure what the Hebrew word means, but it's probably a musical term for a pause or an interlude in the music. And I think you probably heard that even as Hunter was reading it. There was a natural pause there. So, and if that is the meaning, then I think those two selahs actually help us uh, understand the purpose and the meaning of the psalm. And then finally, you'll see that this psalm has a lot of repetition. So repetition is a key feature in all Hebrew poetry, just like uh, in English poetry we have a rhythm, we have rhyme. In Hebrew poetry they use repetition. You see it in a couple different ways here. Uh, the one type of repetition is a line will get repeated immediately after itself. Like look at verse 3. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It says the same thing again, adding a little emphasis to give it a little punch. Uh, that's called synonymous parallelism. And it's actually, there's repetition of that type all through this psalm. There's another type of repetition, though. You'll notice that verse 3 is, is said exactly again in verse 5. It's just, the, the verse is just repeated. And in verses 1 and 2, if you look at verses 1 and 2, they're actually pretty similar to verses 6 and 7. And that right there, when you make those two observations, it's actually a giveaway on what the structure of this psalm is. So this psalm has a chiastic structure. So chiastic or chiastic structure means that uh, it comes from the Greek letter key, which is like our, um, our uh, letter X. And you can see the outline here is actually shaped like an X. What it means is that there's uh, verses one and two have idea A. And the writer goes on to idea B. And then finally idea C. And then at that center point, he, he repeats himself and simply unwinds it. And what this means is, is that the main point of the psalm 
is not at the end of the psalm. It's actually in the center of the psalm. That's the main point. So in, verses, in verse 4. So we're going to use this chiastic structure to help us understand the psalm in this way. We're going to look at the first four verses and uh, understand its meaning, interpret the psalm. And then, after we get to that center point, we'll use the repetition com- coming out from the center, and we'll use it as an opportunity to think about application. How do we apply this to our lives? So, verse 1 of Psalm 67, the A point. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, Selah. The psalm begins with a blessing on the singer, the singers. He expresses a desire that we all have. We all want to be blessed by God, to have his face shine upon us and make us happy. This, this singular thought, the desire to be happy, fills every moment of our days, doesn't it? It's the reason we get out of bed in the morning. It's the reason you go to work. It's the reason we play. It's the reason you come to church. It's in our nature. In fact, as we go through the sermon here, if your mind tunes out and you start thinking about other things, it's because your mind at that moment is saying, look, there's a... I have a greater source of, better chance of happiness somewhere else in another thought. So what kind of happiness are we all after? So our reflex is always physical blessing, right? Lord, give us more money. Give me a better job. Save me from sickness, disease. And when we pray for others, that's often the place we start from. Lord, deliver our friends from pain, from poverty. But we all know that the greater blessings are actually relational. At the end of life, When you're at a memorial service, we measure happiness and success by friends and family. Are you surrounded by people you love? Uh, People who loved you? Then you're blessed. And think of the spiritual blessings needed to be that kind of person. If you're a loving person, not an angry person, someone who can forgive others, not consumed by bitterness, someone who can listen well, someone who can empathize with others, these are all skills, they're traits, that are really spiritual blessings, and they lead to happiness. So that's what I, when I read verse 1, that's what kind of comes to my mind, about the blessing of God in our life. But what about the ancient Israelite, the original audience? What would he or she have been thinking of, especially when at verse 1 it comes to that selah? There's a pause. Think about it. What's just been said? I'm pretty sure what would have come to their mind immediately is the priestly blessing in, Rome, in Numbers chapter 6. Why don't you go there right now, if you can. Keep your uh, finger in Psalm 67 and flip to Numbers chapter 6. Uh, it's page 107 in the Pew Bible. So Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So these are pretty much the exact words, aren't they, right? In uh, Psalm 67, verse 1, is, is just a compressed version of this. You're, you might be familiar with yourself, and in some church traditions, this is a very common benediction given at the end of a service. 
the past, this passage, of number six, comes at the end of the Israelites' time at Mount Sinai. You can imagine the people of Israel gathered there at the base of the mountain. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've been given the law. God's told them about the sacrificial system, how to build the tabernacle, how to offer all these sacrifices in a specific way. And then in the very next chapter, the, tab- the tabernacle is consecrated. Uh, the, the, that sacrificial system has begun. Uh, the first uh, Passover, the com- first commemorative Passover is celebrated in, verse, in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, the cloud lifts and the people of Israel set out from Sinai. So this blessing here in chapter 6, are, these, these are final words. Right? God's given them the law and he ends with this blessing. And what does God say? The Lord bless you and keep you. We worship a God who's holy. He can't be approached except through burnt offering and sacrifice. But he's a God who's tender and caring. The Lord make his face shine upon you. It's one thing for us to worship God, for us to delight in him. But here, we see God is delighting in his people. He shines on us. and in, In that shining face of God, he gives his life and his happiness to us. It's like a father and a mother looking at their child, happy with their child, not because of anything the child has done, simply because he or she is is theirs. It's their child. In the same way, we belong to God. We are his people, and he delights in us. That's the meaning of this blessing. So go back to Psalm 67 now. So we see that verse 1, the prayer in verse 1 is rooted in the covenantal promises of God. God has promised to bless his people, and the psalmist is simply repeating God's words back to him, repeating God's promises, repeating God's attributes back to him in prayer and in song. And these, I think that's the best way to pray. It's a, it's, we see that, that pattern in Scripture, people repeating God's words back to him. I'm in a men's Bible study on Friday mornings. We're uh, just wrapping up the study of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays, and he repeats God's words back to him. God, this is who you are. You're great and awesome. You keep covenant. You're st- you, you're, you have steadfast love. And then Daniel says, this is who we are. This is who you've, your prophets have told us who we are. We're unfaithful. We're disobedient. But Daniel says, we ask for your favor now, not because of our own righteousness, but because of who you are. You've promised to be merciful and gracious to your people. And he ends this prayer with, pay attention and act, he says. It's bold. It's almost audacious. Jesus taught us to pray this way when he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. It's never a prayer based on our selfish desires. It's based on the covenantal promises of God. And I see this here in Psalm 67, especially in those last two verses, uh, when it's repeated in verses 6 and 7. There's a boldness to it. Now on to verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So I think the key word to, to not miss here is the very first word, that, or so that. It's the purpose of the request. The psalmist is asking for blessing based on the covenantal promises of God, but he's not asking for his own sake. Instead, it's for the benefit of others. He's ask, he, he wants others to know the saving power of God, not just those immediately around him, but extending out to the nations. I think there's a general principle here. A genuine blessing always extends to others, and we don't actually experience that blessing until it actually does extend to others. 
uh, Jesus said, whoever wants to save your life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you try to keep your happiness to yourself, you end up losing it. As you share it, as you give it away, you actually increase it. And that giving away happens in an ever-widening scope. What first comes to my mind is my wife, my children. I want to see God bless them. For that, I mean, my extended family, that they would know the saving power of God in their lives. And then it extends out to my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, we meet weekly, regularly to encourage each other in the Lord, to know the Lord and know his saving power. But it extends outside the church, out to our local community, to our nation, and eventually to all nations. And that takes us to verse 3. And I have missed moving the slides, haven't I? Okay, no, no, I'm not. Verse 3. Point B, let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So who are these peoples, these nations that the psalmist is talking about? So our modern view is that there's 191 nations in the world, or, you know, depending on how you count them, it could be 195 uh, with, you know, some political disputes. But these are all well-defined, you know, political boundaries on a map. Uh, at a historic missions conference in 1974, there was a man named Ralph Winter who told the church, instructed us that we should see past these political boundaries and focus on 17,000 people groups defined by language and culture, each group needing to hear the gospel in their heart language and needing to have a vibrant church as a witness of the gospel in their culture. And I think that idea of reaching people groups uh, by, by, by language, by culture, especially those that have no witness of the gospel, it's just a really help. It's, it's been a really helpful way to focus the mission of the church. But the Israelite view of the peoples, how would the Israelites have, as they're reading this psalm, what would they have thought? I think if you read the New Old Testament, the Israelites generally thought that the nations were a bunch of immoral, ignorant idol worshipers. They were without God, and without hope. So when we think of nations today, those 191 nations, we often think of vacations, places we've gone, places we'd like to go. So I've, uh, I've been to Ireland with my son and daughter on a choir trip. Uh, this last fall, I got to go to Italy. My, my, uh, other, my daughter was studying there. We got to go visit her. And uh, someday, I would like to take my wife to England. It has not happened yet, though. Uh, but in the ancient world, there was no vacationing. You didn't take a few weeks off to travel to Egypt or Babylon. Um, even though they were relatively close, there was no ability to do it, but there was also no desire. The nations were the enemies of God. They were foreign lands, best left foreign. But Scripture tells us that God's plan from the beginning was to extend His kingdom to all nations. So if you're at the Lord's Supper service a couple weeks ago, Tom Munson took us through a tour of Scripture of God's promises in the Old Testament. And he started in Genesis, and if I remember right, he started with the promise of God to Abraham that uh, God would bless Abraham, and through Abraham that he would be a blessing to all nations. And then Tom traced it through the Old Testament. But if you look at the, the uh, that, after that passage in Genesis 12, in the uh, five books of Moses, and those first, the early books of the Old Testament, there's actually not much mention of the nations other than a warning to avoid their idolatry. But then comes a, a curious episode that's in 
1 Kings chapter 10. If you want to turn there, it's page 271. Again, keep your finger in Psalm 67. We'll be back in just a minute. 1 Kings chapter 10. So, uh, David has established the nation of Israel. Uh, They're prosperous. They're secure. Uh, Now his son Solomon is on the throne. Solomon begins his reign by praying to the Lord, asking him for, uh, God says, ask me for whatever you want. And Solomon asks for wisdom. God gives him wisdom to rule his people well. Solomon also builds the temple with the resources that his father David had collected. And after the building of the temple, they bring in the ark. Uh, They dedicate it with thousands, tens of thousands of sacrifices. And then God appears to Solomon and reiterates the promises to David. So this is a time of great blessing. God is just pouring out blessings on his people. And then in chapter 10, something curious happens. Uh, The queen of Sheba arrives. And the queen of Sheba is, uh, we don't really, we don't know for sure, but she probably comes from somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula, somewhere foreign, far away. But she had heard of what was happening in Israel and she wanted to see it for herself. Let me just read a few verses. Uh, 1 Kings 10, uh, starting at verse 6. And she, the queen of Sheba, said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So the queen of Sheba sees it. She sees God's blessing in his life. Uh, the wisdom of Solomon, she sees the prosperity. She sees the happiness of him and his people. But most importantly, she sees the source of this. It's from God, right? She says it. She says, this is from God. God loves you. Uh, God is giving you justice and righteousness. I think this episode is a little foretaste of Psalm 67, Unfortunately, in the very next chapter, 1 Kings 11, uh, Solomon kind of trashes his witness by running after foreign wives and, and worshiping their foreign gods. So the advance of God's praise to the nation, it appears briefly, but then it's paused. It's not canceled. And this is the same plan of God being expressed back in Psalm 67. It starts with God's people, those who already know him, but then extends to others. God's purpose is that people from every nation will praise him. So in verse two, I said there was a general principle. Real blessing always extends to others. And I only experience it for myself as it extends to others. I think there's another general principle here. If God is the source of all blessing and joy, then I experience for myself that blessing and joy as I align myself with his purposes. So we look to God not only as the source of blessing, but his purposes are the path of his blessing. And we, uh, we people, we humans are very good at creating purpose for ourselves, aren't we? And often we create little scraps of purpose. And it's amazing how long we run with them. Uh, I think you see it with video games, just trying to like get the high score. Um, you see it with a Netflix series, I'm on season you know, eight and I gotta get to season 10 or whatever. And like these little purposes, um, Nothing wrong with them in and of themselves, but they're, they're just little scraps of purpose. We make them for ourselves. Uh, there's also larger purposes, uh, better purposes, higher purposes, like uh, finding a good job, buying a home, 
raising a family. These are all good pursuits, things we should be doing, but they can be just our pursuits. They're our purposes. What about God's purpose? God's heart is toward the nations. He intends his praise to be sounded from all peoples, all languages, so he's pouring out blessing in that direction. He wants to bless his people so that his way may be known on the earth. It's not monetary blessing, it's not uh, worldly blessing, but a demonstration of God's saving power in our lives. So I think Psalm 67 is teaching us that life is ultimately not about us. It's not about us getting to, to define what makes us what we want or what our purpose is, but rather it's about God and his purposes. And it calls us, we find our highest joy when we see all the events and all the circumstances in our life as part of his plan. And that takes us to the center of the psalm, verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth, Selah. Here the psalmist is answering the question, why should the nations praise God? They will praise him, but why? We can come up with some reasons, like, you know, they're no, they're no longer ignorant, they're no longer lost, uh, they too know the blessing of God. But you see in the text here, there's something more specific. The nations are glad because, or for, God is now judging them with equity. They used to be aimless, but now they have the guidance of God based on perfect justice and fairness. So if you watch cable news, Fox News, MSNBC, either side, uh, if you read the newspapers, you know that the constant drumbeat of our public discourse is a quest for justice. People are searching for it. The war in Ukraine right now, it's a horrific search for justice. Russia is pressing its claims on what's rightfully theirs, and they're willing to do it over the bodies of Ukrainian children. When it's not wartime, if you can remember that, just a few months ago, our political parties, what do we do? We just squabble endlessly that society isn't fair to one group or to another, and then we argue, how are we going to fix it? And there's no easy solutions to our political problems, are there? Uh, uh, every, questions of justice are thorny, they're complicated, and they're historic. If you go back in time, all major political movements have been quests for justice. Think of uh, the founding of our nation, the, the American Revolution, the War for Independence. We had, a, we had a cry, no taxation without representation. Right? It was a cry for justice. Uh, even Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, which then later led to Soviet Russia, uh, he was on a, a quest for justice, for the, uh, you know, to help the oppressed working classes of, of uh, industrialized Europe. Now you could say, well, hey, Marx, your uh, cure was worse than the disease, but uh, it was still a quest for justice. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, they repeat the hope that the day of the Lord is coming, the judge of the earth is coming, and he's going to bring justice. He doesn't come to condemn his people, but rather to vindicate them from their oppressors. And this, this hope, Psalm 67 teaches us, this hope is not just for Israel, it's also for the nations. They're invited to hope in a God who brings them justice as well. And then at the end of the Old Testament, in the beginning of the New, comes the arrival of Jesus. He picks up the same prophetic theme, the coming of the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is at hand. He says it's arriving here and now. 
But then what does Jesus do? To the astonishment of all of his disciples, he submits himself to the hatred of the Jews, he submits himself to the oppression of the Romans, and he allows himself to be put to death on the cross. And the rest of the New Testament is essentially an exposition, what just happened here? What does the death of Christ and his resurrection three days later mean? Right now we're in a, we're, uh, Pastor Rick's taking us through the book of Romans. We get a one-week hiatus here to focus on missions. Last week we saw Rick took us through chapter one, where we see the sinfulness of man, the righteousness of God's wrath. Next week we'll be in Romans two. I think we're going to be in Romans two. Okay, good. Uh, Paul's going to continue the argument. We're all sinful, Gentile, Jew, those with the law, those without the law. We're all guilty under God's judgment. And when Rick gets us to Romans 3 in a few weeks, we're going to see God's solution, which is Christ crucified. And at the center of the solution, and I don't think this is a spoiler, is the issue of justice. How can a sinner be just? How can a sinner be righteous before a holy God? And more importantly, how can a holy God be just to forgive such a sinner? If you can solve that that problem, that kind of central main problem, you solve humanity's problems. And that's what God does at the cross of Christ. God provides justice, a justice we could not provide ourselves. He declares himself just, and he purchases justice for us and for the world, and it's not at our expense, but it's at his expense. And from there, the blessings of his love and his grace pour out in our lives and out to the nations. And we're going to let Rick unpack this, but I really think this is what Psalm 67 is driving at here at the center. Let the nations be glad. So back to our outline here. We've made it to the center. So now we're going to start walking back out, and I want to think about application. How do we apply some of these truths to our lives? How does this relate to, um, how does it work out in our personal lives? How does it relate to missions in our church? How does it actually work? So, Staying on verse 4, how do the nations actually experience gladness? How do they actually come to sing for joy? You could say, well, they should all need to convert, right? They all need to become Christians, and then boom, you know, the problems are solved. Um, Well, it's kind of a simple answer, but kind of skips over how it actually works out uh, in our lives. Maybe he's talking about heaven. When Christ is finally physically present, he can sort out the mess, right? Right? It's certainly true there will be no perfect society until heaven. But I'd like to suggest that we already see Psalm 67 working itself out in our world today. Wherever the gospel has gone, we have already seen greater justice in the world, and that's a reason for the nations to sing for joy. I could pick a bunch of different, uh, there's a lot of areas I could pick. I, I decided to pick one, and that is the status of women. Throughout all human history, women have suffered. They've been used and abused by men in all cultures and in all places. It's true in Europe, Asia, Africa. It's true in the Americas. So what has changed the status of women in the world? I don't think it was 1960s uh, secular feminism. Uh, I don't think it was even uh, the Jewish doctrine of the image of God. Uh, The Jews had that that teaching for 2,000 years and they didn't treat women any better. What dramatically improved the status of women was the coming of Christ uh, and his work on the cross. 
Jesus made women right before God in the same way as men. And that's what enables Peter to tell husbands, live with your, live with your wives in an understanding way because they're heirs with you of eternal life. Or Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wherever the gospel has gone, women have been treated with greater dignity and they have more freedom. And the reason is that Christ treated them with dignity and Christ set them free. So I think I could try to marshal some arguments from history books. I think it's actually a pretty easy argument to make. I think maybe the better case is uh, if you've ever talked to Bob Burris, uh, we saw a video I imagine he shot that video, one of our missionaries to Liberia or into West Africa. If you hear him tell stories, uh, he will tell how the gospel coming into Africa changes the lives of women. Uh, the African men he's training, they're kind of shocked and surprised when they, when they learn, hey, I, I shouldn't have a mistress, or I shouldn't beat my wife. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's shocking to them because that's always been the case for generations. When the gospel comes, the inevitable implication, once it takes root, once it's believed and actually lived out, is that women benefit. I think it's one example of how the nations sing for joy when God comes to judge the peoples with equity. I also think we can think about justice. That's a kind of an example from culture, from history. I think you can also think about justice in a more personal way in our lives. Each of us individually, there are some injustices in our life, in our lives that we cannot fix. Each one of us has experienced some hurt or some betrayal that there's just, there's like no human way to unwind it. Someone's cheated you and you will never get it back. Or someone's abandoned you and they, they are not coming back. Do we believe that perfect justice is available at the cross of Christ? And that this justice is enough to right all wrongs. That it, it compensates for every loss. We don't need to pay anyone back because we've already been overwhelmingly paid out of the riches of Christ. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's kind of it's, uh, staggering even to think about it because you can think of those injustices in your life. Is it true that Christ is enough? Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Christ has provided perfect justice for us. And when we believe this, when we live like it's true, it, it changes our lives, it spills out into the lives of those around us, and it is part of the advance of the gospel to the nations. It's a reason for the nations to be glad. Verse 5. This is the, the verse that's just repeated completely and was our, our, uh, our big hint of the chiastic structure. I'd like to take this, for this point, I'd like to just reflect on uh, some practical ways. I picked four practical ways that we can be involved in missions as a church and, uh, and uh, see this working out in our lives. So, first, it's a tremendous blessing that you, if you're a part of this church, there are, we have missionaries that are part of our church. You are already sending them, right? Your giving to the church is going to them. You're, by simply being in the church body, you are encouraging them. Uh, they 
They're one of us, and we're part of them. Uh, uh, they go, but we send them. There's an essential partnership there. If you're not already connected with them personally, uh, I, I, would, er, I would recommend that you do that. Get on their email list, uh, get their updates, give them financially, pray for them regularly. I'd recommend, uh, we, have, we have a set of missionaries. I'd recommend you pick just one, focus on one, get to know them well. Second idea. Most of us can't go to the mission field as a vocation, but we all have opportunities to go. So that, that ancient Israelite that did, never went on vacations, right? He had no desire and no ability to travel. But we have both, don't we? Every time you go on a vacation, it's kind of a simple little idea, uh, take it as an opportunity to go visit a church. This is your chance to go see a different church in a different place. Even if it's just visiting family outside of Orange County, this is a, this is a chance to be connected with the larger uh, body of Christ. Uh, maybe you uh, use some of your vacation time to actually go on a missions trip or go visit uh, missionaries. But take advantage of the tra uh, travel ability that we have to personally experience it for yourself. We like to think, uh, it's often said in Sunday school classes or even from the pulpit, that uh, God orchestrated the ancient world. He raised up the Greek nation and, and gave the Greek language, the universal language, so that the gospel could spread. The New Testament could be written and understood broadly. We talk about how the Romans, they built Roman, they wrote roads and provided safety, the, the Pax Romana. And this was God's intention to allow the gospel to spread. What if today, in our modern economy, that Delta Airlines, Airbnb, maybe even the internet itself, God raises up for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the nations. He does it hidden from everyone else, but why couldn't that be God's plan? I think we ought to see what God is doing in the world from his perspective. Okay, third idea. Uh, let's send our young people on short-term missions trips. Uh, we old folks, it's kind of hard for us to go. We have our obligations that keep us home. The young people, they're available. Um, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do in life, uh, where they want to go. We ought to send them. Uh, let them consider, maybe God is calling me to be on missions. If you're a young person in this church and there's a, there's a, uh, a missions opportunity um, that's you know, sponsored by our church, encouraged by your youth pastor, it should be the easiest thing in the world for you to raise the money and go. It's not a barrier. So we ought to send our young people and let them go. Fourth and finally, we ought to see that our work here at home is already part of spreading the gospel. So I don't know if you ever thought about this. When in uh, Acts chapter 1, when Jesus told his disciples, you'll receive power, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will be my witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus spoke those words, California was pretty much on the ends of the earth from where Jesus spoke those words, Right? So we are already the church at the ends of the earth. We're here. Uh, as we, so, as we live out the gospel, forgiving each other, working our jobs as unto the Lord, raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord as we gather to worship, we are building the church at the ends of the earth. Now, it, it doesn't mean that there aren't other ends of the earth, and we need to be involved in sending the gospel there too. It's both and. Uh, we have a role to play, be faithful here, and spread the gospel in whatever way God allows us to. And that brings us to the last verse, and I just, there it is.
No. Yes. I got fooled by the A. I thought, wait a minute, I'm back at the beginning. No. Well, it is back at the beginning. Uh, it's back to the beginning idea, but at the close of the psalm, God shall bless us. The, psalm, the psalmist sees that God is a generous and giving God. He fills the earth with its increase, and he shall bless us. You see the confidence there? We're confident in his blessing. It's not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious and merciful. It's not, he's not going to bless us. It's not about getting blessed with money, worldly status, but a demonstration of God's saving power in our lives. God's forgiven us. He's rescued us through that one great act of justice at the cross of Christ. And he means that to be a testimony to those around us and ultimately out to the ends of the earth. And we're confident in the covenantal promises of God, in the purposes of God. He's determined it. It will happen. So we agree with the psalmist. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, are, we praise you as a gracious and merciful God. Lord, we are here, we get to sing your praises here because you've already delivered us from darkness, uh, from unnatural desire, from enslavement to sin, and made us a people that know your salvation in Christ. And Lord, we ask that you would extend that out in our lives. Allow us to show your saving power to those around us, those in our family, in our church, out to the ends of the earth. As we have opportunity, Lord, open doors, get, uh, prod us out so that we go to the ends of the earth and bring the gospel there. Thank you for our missionaries that, are, that have heeded that call. Help us to support them well. Lord, as we, uh, as we, as we close in song here, uh, Lord, give us a... a wisdom to, to see that we are part of your plan for all creation, that all the nations will praise you to the praise and glory of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.